Good morning, everyone. My name is Ed Roche. I'm one of the elders here. And like I, want, I like to say every time, I have today the, the, the privilege and the responsibility of bringing the Word of God for us. As you know, if you have been coming here frequently, we have been going through the book of Daniel. Penultimate session on that uh, next Sunday, Pastor Chris will take the last three chapters of uh, Daniel and complete it. Uh, so prepare, it's going to be like an hour and a half, uh, sir. But today is going to be long enough, don't worry. We're going to do chapter 9 today, we're going to review that. And um, as I start working on this, I, I remembered when I was a teenager, our churches in that area of Sao Paulo, there in Brazil, used to have a yearly Bible quiz competition. And every year, they would announce what was the theme for the following year. So we had like a full year to prepare. I mean, I memorized some books of the Bible. Uh, I, I mean, we, we had uh, a lot of fun with that. And I have always been competitive, so that helped. One of our pastors didn't like. He said, that's the wrong motivation to read the Bible. But today, some 50 years later, I still remember things that I studied. And chapter 9 of Daniel. When I studied that for the Bible quiz, changed the way I see prayer and the way I prayed, and it still affects me. So I hope that uh, we will look at that together this morning and that a similar effect will happen to you guys as well. As you have observed already, as we studied Daniel, the first six chapters were pretty much historical events in the life of Daniel and his friends living in captivity in Babylon. Chapter 7 to the end of the book are mostly revelations, special revelations that God gives to, to Daniel. And that's going to be the case today as well. Uh, if you see the little summary of the sermon in the back of the bulletin, I uh, say Daniel's request and God's response. There are two big chunks of this relatively long chapter, and we're going to divide them and study them in that format. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to open your word, to understand what it means for us, and we ask that we do that for your glory and for our edification this morning. Amen. Okay, part one, Daniel's request. It's a, it's a fairly long prayer, but it's interesting. Prayer has always been something that followers of Christ have been interested, right? I mean, the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Recently, our women in the church did a five-week series on prayer. Our little group that we do the Portuguese Bible studies every other week, we did a study on prayer uh, earlier this year. And the Bible has a lot of examples of prayers. I mean, David prayers, phenomenal ones. Uh, Nehemiah has some great uh, prayers in his book. Daniel, obviously, we're going to go through one uh, today. In the New Testament, we have, obviously, the Lord's Prayer from Jesus and Paul's prayers. They are very good examples for us to, to learn and adjust how we pray, understand a little better how we are to pray. We're going to start with the introduction that Daniel makes to the, to the topic by reading Daniel 9, verse 1 to 3. I really would like you guys to keep your Bibles open or your app uh, this morning as we go through it because I'm going to be coming back. We use the, the ESV reference, so what I'm going to be reading here will be from the uh, ESV. So again, Daniel 9, 1, 2, 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first week of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
Okay, let's look at some important things there. And we normally try to motivate people to sit towards the front of the church. Today, you're going to have one more reason, because probably you're not going to be able to read what I'm going to put on the board if you sat back there, and we have a lot of chairs here. So maybe you learn a lesson today. Okay, Daniel is under the, the Babylonian captivity. We still call it that way, even though a little bit before this moment that he has this prayer, the empires changed. The Mid-Persian Empire overcame the, the Babylonian, but it's still uh, throughout the Bible is referred to as the, uh, as the Babylonian captivity that the, the people were there. Daniel says that it was the first year of Darius or Darius if you prefer that uh, way of saying the name and he understands that the captivity started obviously when Jerusalem was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar we saw that in the beginning of the uh, book of Daniel and it's interesting Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah they are Almost contemporaries. I mean, Jeremiah was a prophet at the time the captivity started. So it's possible that they have even met each other. I mean, they were probably both in Jerusalem at that time. But definitely the books that Jeremiah wrote with the messages that God gave him were available and understood by Daniel as scripture inspired by God. He recognized Jeremiah as a prophet of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. The rest of the, the, the chapter, I mean, the, the value that he gives to that. Uh, and as you saw in the text, Daniel reads in Jeremiah that the captivity was going to be 70 years. He says, well, when, when Jerusalem was invaded, it was 605 B.C., Actually, obviously, that calendar was not invented yet at that time, right? I mean, before Christ, Christ was, has not, had not come yet. But the year, the first year of Darius was 538. Daniel, besides being good in a lot of things, he was good in math as well. He said, hey, we've been here for 67 years. So this has got to be very close. Okay? So here's Daniel. He is... 80-some years old, because if he has been in captivity for 67 and he was taken as a teenager, he was probably early 80s when he, he's there. So keep that in mind, because that is the baseline. I mean, he is looking at 67 years that the people were yanked out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. They have been living in captivity. And he knows that that was a consequence of their disobedience. I mean, if he read Jeremiah 29, 10, where it talks about the 70 years, he read the rest of Jeremiah when he tirelessly kept telling the people, turn, turn back from your ways, otherwise the hand of God will come to you. So he was reading that, so he knew they were for these 67 years in captivity because of this, their disobedience in relation to God. So that sets the tone to what comes next, okay? Just keep that in mind. By any chance, is it possible even to read from the back there? Yeah? Good eyes. Okay, good, good. Feel better now. Okay, so let's go to the prayer itself. So with this background, Daniel is going to take this very serious, fairly long prayer. So join me in reading Daniel 9, 4 through 19. Please follow on your Bibles there. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and act wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To you, O Lord, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we, we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which we, he set before us his servants and, uh, by his servants prophet, the prophets. O Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has been there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, Lord, our, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy hill because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now pay extra attention to the 18 and 19. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolations and the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Wow, what a prayer. Let's go through this in parts. If you come to our prayer meetings, you're going to recognize that we normally organize our blocks of times in our prayer in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we see all those present in, in Daniel's prayer. For example, adoration. He starts right in the beginning. He says on verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God. In verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. So actually you see that in many other uh, prayers in the Bible where adoration to God comes before anything else that we do. Actually, in the liturgy of our service, we start that way as well, with the, the adoration part as being the beginning of the reason we are here uh, together. So, question for you at this point. When you pray, do you jump to the supplication or do you start with adoration? Recognizing that you are talking to the creator of the universe. I mean, can you imagine the privilege that was given to us to directly talk to the God that created everything, created us, the universe, and he's in control, he's over everything. So let's try to remember, I mean, using uh, Daniel's prayer as, 
as an example for us the adoration part. Then, like in our service, right after our first worship song, we have the moment for confession. And that's present, actually very present, in Daniel's uh, prayer here. Sixteen times he is confessing in his name and the name of his people the things that they have uh, done wrong. Note that pretty much everything we read about Daniel, he was a very righteous man. Actually, there is nothing recorded in the Bible about him not doing the right things, right? I mean, that's probably the most extensive description of someone's life with no blemish. I mean, it's not like you're reading uh, about Jacob that has a lot of things, I mean, uh, that uh, he does that are quite questionable. But Daniel knows that he's a sinner, that he needs God's mercy. No matter how righteous he may behave, how righteous he may appear to other people, he's not perfect enough for our perfect God. So his prayer of confession is full of the first person. He is not blaming his fathers or his ancestors and leaving himself out of it and doing that in the third person. A few uh, examples there. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. You should see how he does the contrast. Verse 7 that we just read the beginning. Says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. I like the, the, the comparison that uh, he does here. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and act wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So he's saying we actively have sinned against you. Then you look on verse 6. He goes to the other direction. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. I normally do the confession part of our service, and if you guys are here, remember that once in a while I say, let's pay attention to the sin of omission, the moments that we don't do something we should do. So Daniel, in his confession, he's covering both parts, the things that they did wrong and the things, the moments that they failed to do the right thing. For example, we have not listened to your servants, the, the prophets. So let's keep that in mind. Education for us, for our time of prayer, when we are confessing that we stop to review and understand what are the moments that we have offended our God by either doing something against his will or not doing something he wanted from us. Like Pastor Chris said a few minutes ago, you could say, well, haven't I been forgiven? It shouldn't make a difference. Well, it does. Because we have been forgiven, we should live a life that pleases God. So we have a lot to confess, right? It's not to be accepted by God. It's because we have been accepted by God that we should live a life that pleases him. And when we don't, we should approach him and confess and, and ask for forgiveness of our sins. It's for the relationship with him, right? So... Do you spend time confessing to God those moments you offend him with what you do or with what you fail to do? If you don't, if you're still starting your prayer with the supplication, one more. You start with adoration, go to confession, okay? You need to do that. Now, the thanksgiving part is understandably not as prominent, I mean, Daniel and his people are in captivity for 67 years. It's not exactly the brightest moment in, in, in the history of Israel or, or Judah. He still carves a little moment in verse 15, and he says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's thanksgiving. He is going back to something that happened uh, about a thousand years prior to the moment that he is uh, praying there to thanks God for something. I mean, hey, this is the week we'll have Thanksgiving. Let's make sure we, that's not the only day of the year that we stop to be thankful 
to the things that God has, has done for, for us. That should be part of our uh, prayer. Well, now we get to the supplication uh, part. First comment in this long prayer, only on verse 16, Daniel eventually gets to supplication. All the time before that, he was either doing adoration, confession, or thanksgiving. Verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous act, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Verse 17, Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. 17, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So he is obviously anticipating the end of those 70 years. He is confessing, asking forgiveness, and asking that God deliver them from that situation. Well, it was going to happen. God had promised that was going to happen. It was going to happen. But he is praying and he is confessing. So even though God knows everything, he wants to hear our prayer. He wants to hear us coming to him and confessing and wanting that relationship, even in things that he had already promised and were going to happen regardless of Daniel praying or not. But God obviously was pleased to see his servant humbly coming to him and, and, and confessing and, and requesting that. Now, another thing that caught my attention in this text, if you zoom a little bit further in, look at a few comments that Daniel makes. Verse 17, for your own sake. Verse 18, the city that's called by your name. Verse 19, because your city and your people are called by your name. He is grounding his prayer on God's glorification. Do you see that? I mean, he's not saying, I want to get out of this. I mean, I have been here for 67 years, Lord. I want to go back. By the way, very, very likely, Daniel never went back to Jerusalem. There's no reference that he did. As I said, he was 80-some years old at, uh, at that point, and the waves of returning people from the exile happened in the next 20-some years. So it's quite likely that Daniel never went back to Jerusalem. So... His prayer is primarily for God's own glory. Do you see that? Uh, I, 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 when we were studying John with the, the, the Portuguese, the Gospel of John with the Portuguese Bible study, there is a, a point that Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, the Father will do. And you may think, well, wait a minute, I've asked a lot of things and they didn't happen. What was Jesus' meaning? Well, he's saying, asking in my name. It's like you are approaching the Father to bring a message from Jesus Christ. Hey, he told me this. So Daniel is coming to God here and you said that you would do this. Please do it for your own glory. You understand how that, uh, that is working there. I have shared that with you guys before. Our kids are far from the Lord for uh, quite some time now and I frequently pray in that direction that for God's glory hey two more people that could be glorifying your name here Lord please reach out bring them back close to you it's, it's two more people to glorify you I mean why not and obviously we don't fully understand the, God's plans and unfortunately Jeremiah did not record the date when our kids would come back to the Lord. So I can't do the math like Daniel did. So unfortunately, we're going to have to keep on praying, right, Liz? Okay. And then it comes to verse 18. That's the one that hit me when I was a teenager that I mentioned in the, in the beginning. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That's fundamental. I mean, we can't go to God saying, God, you owe me this. God, you need to do this. God is not a genie of the lamp that you're going to rub. He's going to come and 
do your desires. Your supplication has to be humble and never, never based on your merits, your righteousness, because I deserve or something like that. God doesn't owe us anything. It's for his grace, his mercy, that the only reason we can approach him and ask anything. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So the two points that we saw in Daniel's supplication, do you approach God with your supplication in a way that his name will be honored and glorified? And second, are you humble to understand that you're not demanding something you deserve, but you're asking for God, his mercy, his grace? It's not because we deserve. And then he emphasized that one more time in verse 19 with his uh, whole heart. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God. Okay, so profound prayer. Exceptional. Great model for us to, to look at. Let's take a look what God's response was. Two sermons for the price of one today, okay? <laughs> Black Friday offer, okay? God's response. We're going to look at Daniel 20 to 23 first, a little uh, portion, and then we'll read the, the rest of the chapter a little further down. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. How cool is that? Daniel was still praying. You never heard the amen at the end of his prayer, right? He was still praying. Then, whew, here comes Gabriel. Can't imagine that. And Daniel already knew who he was because chapter uh, 7 or 8, when Chris was preaching, uh, his name was announced. A voice said, Gabriel, tell Daniel uh, the stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to. My sermon is long enough. I'm not going to repeat the Pastor Chris sermon at that point. So Gabriel, a, a known felon, uh, fellow from, uh, from Daniel here. By, by the way, I imagine you're going to see, I, I will forget if I don't mention this now, everything that Gabriel will tell Daniel about what's about to come. I imagine when it was time for Jesus to, to come and somebody had to announce it. I imagine Gabriel saying, let me do it, let me do it. Because, I mean, I was the one who told Daniel that this was going to happen. Let me do it. And he, he was the one who went to tell Mary what was going to happen. But let's see here. By the way, I sometimes have the bad habit of interrupting people when we are talking. Even the angels do. <laughs> Even Gabriel did that, okay? Please have mercy on me. It's a bad habit, but hey. <laughs> she reminds me of it all the time. Okay. Gabriel was sent at the beginning of Daniel's prayer. So basically, God already knew what Daniel was going to say and said, Gabriel, go there. Tell him what's, what's coming up. And Gabriel comes to give him insight and understanding. And what a phenomenal thing to hear when Gabriel tells Daniel, because you are greatly loved. Can you imagine that? I mean, we like when our spouse tells us they love us, when our kids tell us they love us, or our parents 
Imagine the word of God, an angel coming. Hey, God told me to come here because you are great, greatly loved. We are greatly loved, guys. God sent Jesus to die. I mean, that's, that's more proof than anything else. So, now let's come to, to the point where uh, Gabriel is going to uh, explain. Again, remember, Daniel was making a fairly small thing. I mean, his, his view was about three following years, what was coming there. Gabriel comes and says, Daniel, hold on. I have way more to tell you about it. It doesn't even fit in your poster board. We're going to have to use more space here. So <laughs> let's read the rest of the chapter, 24 to 27 now. This is Gabriel speaking God's word. 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then 62 weeks. It shall be built with squares and, and moats, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and the end shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, these verses have more different interpretations than you can think of. Uh, Alistair Bag even says, I disagree with some of my closest friends on the interpretation. He said, but I also reserve the right to change my mind before the end of the day today and as many times in my life as it might happen until I maybe reach an understanding of this text. Uh, other commentators call it the most difficult uh, text to be understood. Uh, I will follow one line of thought that I understand it makes sense. The main message won't change if you have a, a, a different understanding of it. Let's be clear on that. I don't want to give the impression that, hey, there will be a division in the church. The ones that believe the 70 weeks are done and the ones that believe they are not done yet. I mean, the, the fundamental message won't change, but there, is, there are different ways of interpreting it. And that's, I'm going to cover one of the ways. Uh, Gabriel says that there would be 70 weeks. Some translations have 70 sevenths. Okay, it's almost one of the few things that most commentaries agree is that it means 77 means seven, 70 times seven years or 490 years. Okay, that's pretty much an agreement from everybody. Also, one thing that's easy to, to agree, I believe, is it says, your people and your holy city. So this prophecy is directed to the Jews and to Jerusalem with consequence for the whole world, including ourselves, but it's specifically directed to, to them. As Gabriel continues, he lists six things that will happen at the end of this prophecy. If I fall, you catch me there, Chris. I, I went a little too close to the edge. Okay, it talks about finished transgression. 
and sin. Atone iniquity. Three things that will be ended, okay? Finish transgression and sin, atone iniquity. And three things that will be implemented. Bring everlasting righteousness. Seal, vision, and profit. And anoint a holy place. When I look at this, that's one of the reasons that I favor this way of interpreting this. I don't think these six things are present in our world today. If I look around, I don't think sin has, been, has ended, transgression has finished. Again, you could interpret different because obviously when Jesus Christ came, he paid for those. But when I see these everlasting righteousness, seal the vision and prophet, anoint the holy uh, place. And when I read Revelations in the New Testament, the New Testament version of Daniel, uh, I see a lot of these being promised in the future when John wrote Revelations in year 100. So all those together give me the understanding that these have not been completed. And clearly, Gabriel is saying, the end of these 490 years, this will be implemented. So I have the impression to favor the interpretation that we are not done with the 490 years, which brings a few other uh, challenges uh, in the sequence there. He says that there would be a period of Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay. That's, that's right there uh, on verse 25. Okay. Um, and he also says that the stopwatch, I asked Dave, my friend, to bring me a stopwatch so I could, the stopwatch of God starts at a very clear point, when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is issued. Now, again, there is some debate on that. Cyrus allowed the people to start coming back to, to Jerusalem. That's one event. Then Ezra and some people have another wave going back and they rebuild the temple. The one that seems the closest to Really, an author a formal authorization, a decree to rebuild the city seems to be the one that happened in chapter 2 of Nehemiah when he is authorized to go back and rebuild the walls and the city. And that's 445 B.C. Okay, that's the most likely moment that God pressed the start button here. Now, 7 plus 62, 69. If I'm saying that uh, these are years, and I move this up a little bit, otherwise I'll run out of space. I have 20 of these to put here, guys. I am, and I'm not joking. <laughs> okay. 483 years. To happen what? For the coming of the anointed one. So at the end of these 62 weeks, what happened? The coming of the anointed one. Now, if you go from here, 445, and you add 483, you overshoot. You're going to get beyond the time that Jesus came, which would be the most natural interpretation of the coming of the anointed one. Now, if you look in Revelations, typically prophetic years are talking in terms of 360 days. You can see the exact math in Revelation. Uh, I have the verse here, I'll tell you guys in a minute. So typically in prophecy, 
a year is 360 days. Again, that's, that's clear in, in Revelation. So, it's closer to the lunar calendar than to the solar calendar. So, if you're doing days instead of years, and I'm not going to do that to not even further extend our discussion here, but if you just convert 383 years, if you do that times 360 divided by 365, you get 476 days, which actually you have to also remember that day zero, uh, year zero, did not, I'm saying days, years, 476 years. Year zero didn't exist, right? If you go to the calendar, one year before Christ, or year one before Christ, and year one after Christ are next to each other. So if you take 445 and you put, thing, you come to year 32. Now, for those that maybe you're interested, and I'm not going to go through that, I have one guy, Sir Robert Anderson, wrote a book, The Coming Prince, and he went to the calendar and looked at leap years and uh, every adjustment that he could do. And he came from the exact date of this decree that's possible to calculate. It's the first day of the month of Nisan, that's Nehemiah 2, to the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. And it's greeted as the Messiah, the King. There are exactly, to the day, 173,880 days. Is that the exact calculation? Is Sir Robert Anderson correct? I can't be absolutely sure. He put way more time into that than I, than I did. But even if you make small adjustments here, it's fairly clear that this block of 69 weeks ended with the coming of the Anointed One, with the coming of Jesus. And if we continue the verses after that, there are comments that don't seem to belong, because 69, we're still missing one week, right? If you look at the, the verses that talked about that, it says that after that, the anointed one will be cut off. That looks a lot like Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Right? So, coming of the anointed one at the end of the 69 weeks, on 32 AD, when he was beginning his ministry, or, sorry, he was ending his ministry. He was entering Jerusalem. And just a little bit after that, now the way it's described on those verses, it does not look like that this belongs to the week seven, 70 or the, the seven final years of the prophecy. Because it says, and after this, but it's not talking. It's verse 27. He only talks about the 70th week in verse 28. And also, it says that the holy city would be destroyed. Well, this does not appear in the Bible, but your world-class teacher probably told you that Jerusalem was destroyed in year 70 AD. So it looks like what's in verse 27, when it's talking about after these, after the 69 weeks, are still not part of the last missing week. So I favor the interpretation that that week has not happened. Again, if, you, if you're following me, at the end of the 70, 69 plus one, this will happen. If we can agree that these have not happened yet, this has not happened. So apparently, God pressed the pause button in, these, in his stopwatch. And if I had one of those little stars, you are here, we're here. Right? We're not there yet. Apparently, we have not seen that 70th 
week. Now, why understanding this, besides being quite fun to do this, uh, at least for somebody that likes math, and I may not have a lot of followers in the audience, but I... <laughs> but why is it important on November 20th, 2022, that we understand this? Well, if we go back, Isaiah, another hundred and some years prior to Daniel, prophesied that a guy named Cyrus would be the one that would free the people. And guess what happened? At the end of the 70 years that I had on the back, Cyrus is the one that allowed the people to go away. It happened. Jeremiah prophesied that the captivity was going to be 70 years long. Guess what? It happened. Gabriel tells Daniel that at the end of the 69 weeks, there will be the coming of the anointed one, and then after that, the anointed one would be cut off. And it happened. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus' life and death that, that happened. I mean, you start comparing. I mean, you read Psalm 22. How could David write Psalm 22 a thousand years before Christ? I... It's describing the cross. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So there is no other plausible explanation except that there is a God who doesn't even live in our timeline. He is outside. He looks at this. And he controls whatever he wants to control. Everything or his selected interventions in, in history. So there are even more prophecies that say that the anointed one will come back. Okay? There are many prophecies that, again, are hard to understand because the ones that already happened, they become a little more clear after history has passed the point the prophecy happened. The ones that are still in the future may be fuzzier for us, which is completely normal. But there is enough evidence that Jesus is coming back. Again, if we can agree that the prophecies that God made in the past, all of them happened exactly, possibly to the day, assuming the calculation is right, why should we doubt that the prophecies that are coming are going to happen as said? Pastor Chris read uh, last week, uh, on chapter 7, uh, 13 and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Goosebumps. I mean, this is going to happen. It didn't happen. I mean, we would have noticed, right? I mean, if what we just read had already happened, we would know it. So it's still coming. So with the anticipation that Daniel had about the end of the 70 years, I want to have that anticipation today that maybe we're very close to that final uh, week there that we may be praying, Maranatha come Lord Jesus because it, it's going to happen, it has been clearly prophesied now the bad news, we all have sin which separates us from a perfect God we offended the creator of the universe there is nothing we can do to pay the price to restore our relationship with him. We cannot save ourselves, no matter how much good we do. God doesn't have a scale that says, ah, you have nine sins here and ten good things here. Okay, you're, you're good. That's not. I mean, to be in God's presence, we have to be clean. And we can't clean our sins. Now, together with the bad news come the good news. 
like Daniel said, we don't come to God based on our righteousness, but because of his great mercy. It is by his grace that he sent Jesus to pay the price we could not pay. His life, death, and resurrection are sufficient to atone for our sin. I like to repeat, and I squeeze this verse almost every time, John 1, 11 to 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Maranatha, come, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word, Lord. And when we get there to your presence, I will want to ask a few questions, see if our understanding was correct, Lord. But we see our hands all over history, Lord. We see our prophecies being completed. And we know that you are still in control of history like you have been throughout history, Lord. We, we thank you for the word you have left for us that we can understand that glory be to your name, that your son is coming, not as a servant this time, but as a king. And his reign will be forever, Lord. We praise your name. We understand you are the great, God that created the universe, created each one of us, Lord, and we want to have this relationship with you by the grace of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.